0: This interview is brought to you by Cambridge University Press. Please visit Cambridge at www.cambridge.org. There you can find their entire catalog of books. And, of course, you can buy them there as well. So please visit the press today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have Nick Smith on the show, And we'll be talking about his terrific book, Justice Through Apologies, Remorse, Reform, and Punishment. I think this book should be of interest to everyone, as everyone I know. I'm sorry, I paused, but I had to think about that for a second. Everyone I know actually does apologize for things. I think there are people that don't, but I don't know any of them. Nick, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I am a professor of philosophy at University of New Hampshire. Uh, This is my second book. Uh, The first book was I Was Wrong: The Meanings of Apologies, and this is kind of an application of a lot of those ideas to legal context. Uh, I used to be a litigator at a large New York law firm. I was a staff attorney for the U.S. Court of Appeals for a while. I've had a bunch of legal jobs, and I've been a philosophy professor for uh, about 12, 12 years now.
0: Well, I got to ask, why'd you make that switch? How did you make that switch? That's a big switch.
1: Uh, it is a big switch. Uh, you know, getting a nice professor job is—you uh, know—it's kind of difficult. I'm a first-generation college student, so the idea of being a professor was kind of a long shot uh, when I was in college. And you know, I got a law degree and a PhD at the same time, just in case the the academic hmm. shtick didn't work out. Uh, but I landed this really wonderful, amazing, pleasant job in a beautiful part of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I took a massive salary cut and I never looked back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, tell us why you wrote justice through apologies.
1: Yeah. Why I wrote it. Um, there's a lot of different levels of why one writes a book and a lot of, a lot of different kinds of motivations and intentions. Uh, I mean, career wise, it's an interesting story that, you know, I started working on apologies about you know fifteen years ago. I wrote a a dissertation on the problem of what we call commodification in law, where people have injuries of various kinds and those injuries get converted into cash awards. Right. So, you know, your arm gets cut off by a piece of machinery and you get a million dollars or you suffer racial discrimination and you get five hundred thousand and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I was writing on the context of what it means to be a culture that converts various kinds of injuries into money and the consequences of that and why that's problematic in all sorts of ways. And in my naive graduate school self, I was thinking, um, you know, aren't apologies an interesting alternative To money, you know, an alternative that has kind of thick moral meaning that's more substantial and valuable than just, you know, slapping a cash award on something. And as I got to researching apologies as an alternative to cash awards, I realized that a lot of people, especially big money, were way ahead of me on this. And they had already found various kinds of ways to commodify apologies, Right, so you know, you'll find um you know, in, in settlement negotiations we'll either give you, you know, five million or three point five in an apology. And when I started realizing that the apologies were already part of these negotiation processes and already had been pretty smoothly integrated into uh big litigation, I realized that there was a lot of very confusing tricky things going on and in particular that you know apologies seem to be meaningful to people and people want them and whenever you look at you know you look at the headline news pretty much every day someone is either apologizing for something or being commanded to apologize for something a lot of our public discourse about morality happens around apologies and it's very complicated and my first book sort of lays out all the reasons why it's why they're so complicated and there's at least you know, a dozen, sometimes two dozen different things I look for. But I found that that complexity is really confusing to people and that those who are in power, you know, socially, financially, uh, have found ways to manipulate all the confusion and ambiguity to their advantage. So one of the reasons that motivated me to write this, the second book was to get underneath and to start providing a, a toolbox that helps people understand what apologies can mean, and the kind of you know profound things that they can do. Like you know, someone can fundamentally change their behavior and never do something again. Someone can really provide um, you know compensation. They can uh, you know, in some cases, apologies are world-transforming. And um, there's a bunch of environmental cases where corporations apologize, and really, you know it changed the tenor of global politics uh, and global business practices. And I wanted in this book to explain the various kinds of uses and abuses that apologies get put to in in legal context, in, in part to empower victims, because what you see in examples throughout the book is the way that victims are deceived and manipulated into thinking they're getting something with an apology that they're actually not and how very powerful interests are able to manipulate ambiguous language uh, into you know, a kind of uh, media relations value that actually has very little moral value and can actually um, you know, doubly injure victims. So part of the motivation was to to start to make clear the dynamics, the really crazy, strange, bizarre dynamics that go on in apologies and legal contexts, and that's just the first level, yeah the first <laughs> yeah. Le- yeah, that's the first level. It's uh, funny you know, could, yeah, I'm
0: sorry, I remember that you mentioned um you mentioned uh, sort of. career requirements or institutional requirements. I had somebody on the show once and I asked him that question, why did you write this book? And he said, well, it was a contractual obligation by employment. (laughs) Which you don't hear that very much, but
1: anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, another level that is kind of interesting, especially to, you know, aspiring writers out there is, you know, I started working on this apology stuff, as I said, in the context of a, you know, a dissertation on commodification law and what was a very small chapter you know, a few thousand words about apologies as an alternative to cash awards. Now that became an article that I published in, you know, 2006 or something like that. And I thought I could deal with all the issues related to apologies in law in an article.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that article, I realized, you know, no way can I cover this in this ground. That article sure. became a book yeah. and I got, you know, I got a contract with Cambridge to write that book. And then as I was writing that book, you know, the editors and I kind of, started to realize this is actually two books. You know, you should do one book on, you know, just trying to figure out what apologies are generally. And there's a whole other book about apologies in law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what was just a short chapter became two books. Yeah. And how your career unfolds, and it's 10 years later, uh, you know, sort of a bit of fortuity, a bit of, you know, I, mean, I was fortunate to back into an issue that, you know, very little work had been done on it. Uh, and there wasn't really a philosophical monograph on it since Maimonides, right? so it's 500 or so years ago. Uh, so there's, you know, all those, you know, the constellations of one's career, yeah. how all those stars align, and all of a sudden you become, you know, one of the world's experts on the sort of thing <laughs> that 10 years ago, you wouldn't really have imagined that you would be that guy. Yeah. And here you are.
0: Yeah, that's a different show. It's on accident. Um, so let's talk a little bit about apology. And I guess this, some of this material will probably come from your first book. And obviously our listeners should read both. What is an apology and why do we make them?
1: Well, um, in the first book, I, I spend a lot of time, uh, doing one initial thing that I think is important. Um, and that is. When people think about apologies, they they often tend to think in what I call binary terms, meaning they think about them as either all or nothing sorts of things. Like, you know, I've gotten an apology or I haven't gotten an apology. And it's like, you know, you hear the word sorry and then you file, you know, you check off the box. Okay, I got an apology. Uh, I think that binary view is sort of the all or nothing view is very distorting of the actual meanings that that can be conveyed. And I think that's uh, often what leads to most confusion is that people want to check off the box and they hear something like the word sorry, or I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry this happened to you. And, you know, we have very strong desires to feel like we've been apologized to in all sorts of situations, whether it's a romantic situation or you know, some kind of colossal, you know, historical injury that our, you know, people of our ethnicity have suffered or something like that, people really want the apology. And I think that desire to check the box causes us to fail to appreciate all the different pluralistic uh, varieties of apologies that we can receive and all the different kinds of things that apologies can do and accomplish. And... I think that uh, lack of clarity can be socially damaging, can be personally damaging in all sorts of ways. So when I'm evaluating apologies and a lot of the work I do entails, um, you know, someone provides an apology and what does it mean? What have they accomplished? What have they said? Uh, what what should we make of it? You know, my my treatment of apologies are always looking for, uh, what, what does this mean? What meanings are included? what meanings are not included, given what's been said and done, uh, how should we respond, Uh, should we trust the person, things like that. So there's a bunch of things that I generally look for when evaluating apologies, and there's, you know, lots of things. There's an infinite number of things, an infinite number of nuances. But some of the basic things I look for, uh, you know, first I'm looking for the apologizer to – what happened and what that's what I describe as uh, you know they've corroborated the factual record meaning and it's a simple thing but you start to realize how often apologies don't include it they just explain what went down Uh, so many times when people apologize they get as vague as possible you know, they'll they'll take sort of the Arnold Schwarzenegger tact of, you know, bad things happened uh, without explaining, you know, like, you know, that's that's a famous example in the case of um, uh, accusations of multiple sexual assaults. Or, you know, I think he said, I acted badly. Or, you know, it's, you know, and you want to know, all right, so did you or did you not do any number of things that you were accused of, of doing? And what we often find is just this Very vague, very ambiguous, Uh, you know, mistakes were made without saying, you know, what exactly happened or who is responsible for it. Uh, That is something, uh, that second bit, who is responsible, is something that you can often tell a lot about an apology by these first two things. Has the apologizer explained what happened? And have they accepted blame for it? It just just those two threshold conditions, like, all right, what happened? And are you the person who deserves blame? And I you know, blame is different from responsibility, because people will, you know, throw around that word responsibility in all sorts of ways, like, you know, President Obama may say, you know, I take responsibility for the war in Afghanistan, even though he may think, you know, it's actually, you know, Bush's fault or whoever's fault and has nothing really to do with me and I'm, you know, it's my responsibility in the same way it's a janitor's responsibility to clean up someone else's mess. Right. Uh, and explaining what happened and that you deserve blame, uh, goes a long way. Uh, other things I look for, uh, you know, why it does, why does this thing deserve blame? Uh, you know, what's the underlying value that, you consider important enough to recognize and apologize for and why do you share that value and why is that value that we share central to, you know, our relationship, our shared humanity, that you treat me with respect, things like that. Uh, I also look for, um, a promise never to do it again, which is again something that, uh, People seem to often fail to to look for, because oftentimes in apologies what we really want is just don't ever do that again, Know that what you did is wrong, it's unacceptable, you're not going to do it again. Until we've had those initial elements of someone explaining what they did and why they deserve blame for it, we're not even going to get to the never doing it again. In lots of apologies, you'll see people say, yeah, mistakes were made, bad things happened, uh they haven't accepted blame. They haven't explained precisely what was wrong, which means we have little reason to think they're not going to do it again. Because they haven't even said they did it once. So they haven't um you know, made any kind of commitment to reforming. And one of the one of the frustrating aspects of my theory of apologies that I think is essential and I, I refuse to back down from it even though everyone hates it because it's very um annoying is that you can't really judge an apology the moment it's spoken. Many people tend to equate apologies with like a, what we call a speech act, like I said something and, right, I said it, now I'm done with it, and I don't have you accepted it, and can we move on? Apologies are, in my view, a lifelong promise, not to reoffend, And they gain credibility over time. So if you promise for instance, right, uh you know, not to drink again. Right, it's one thing to make that promise. It's another thing to keep that promise for a day, a week, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It's especially powerful to make that promise when you're faced with temptations to have a drink all the time. You know, and you've been in all sorts of environments that may have been, you know, difficult in the past. Uh and you've been in those environments, and you've not had a drink, and you know. Then I really see that your apology you may have made ten years ago really starts to gain credibility over time. So you know, the opposite of that is you know, say you give this beautiful, eloquent, nicely phrased apology with lots of tears, and uh, you know, you really mean it, um, and you make a big deal about it, and then you reoffend next week. You do the same thing next week. That's going to drain the apology of most of its meaning. So when we judge apologies, it takes time. And that's inconvenient. It's especially inconvenient in critical and criminal cases where we're trying to determine punishments and things like that. You know, we sort of want to know, all right, have you transformed your character from you know, last week to today? And that's not how, that's not how it works. And apologies don't happen in the course of a news cycle, right? You'll see someone busted for something today and then apologizing on the news tomorrow. You know, moral transformation doesn't happen like that. It takes time, and it takes a demonstrated commitment to the values to not reoffend, right? So, that you know, it's a bit of an inconvenient aspect of evaluating apologies is that you actually need, a you know, some kind of record to, to evaluate them on. I also look for, uh, you know, the kind of redress people provide. You know, how are they going to try to take responsibility, practical responsibility for making the injured, Party better, whole. You know, I resist. Um, lots of people use language like, uh, uh, you know, turning the page, or uh, you know, making the victim whole, or repairing the injury. I mean, a lot of injuries, especially really serious injuries, like you can't you can't undo them. They leave scars. Uh, the pain may. You know, diminish over time, but apologies don't erase the past. Uh, you know, They make the future a bit different, and they make the way we go forward living together in the future different. But I think it's a, a kind of metaphysical mistake when people talk about apologies as if they undo the wrong. Right? The wrong is still there. The wrong is still on the record. It's a matter of moving forward together in a different kind of way. And I'm very suspicious of people who treat apologies as if, well, I apologize. We're done with that um right i 've like i 've undone that, and we can forget that now and don 't bring it up anymore uh you know those are often people who i um, i worry haven 't appreciated the gravity of what they 've done, and I worry about their commitment to actually reform because it looks like their intentions are primarily to um, you know, put this behind them rather than uh, changing their behavior or uh, you know trying to improve the life of, of the victim. Uh, and intentions are important to me uh, when evaluating apologies. You know, why is the person apologizing? Are they apologizing because that's the best public relations strategy to uh, damage control stock values, right? I mean, this is why a lot of corporate apologies just immediately smell wrong because everyone knows the reason that these words are being said is for, you know, institutional damage control. That's very different from a person who's apologizing because they know they've done something wrong. They feel like their, you know, their character, their sense of self-worth is at stake and that they're apologizing because they think it's the right thing to do and that caring for attending to treating the injured people with respect is what they should be doing, right? That it's a very different motivation and intention for apologizing than uh, doing damage control. Uh, so you know, those are the big things I tend to look for. There's lots of other pieces that tend to come into play in different contexts, but uh, those are kind of the you know the basic staples that I'm often you know bouncing back and forth between when evaluating apologies.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you give us a quick example of somebody who did give an apology, a public figure? Let's say I don't know if there is a, such a person because I'm really having trouble thinking of one. And somebody who didn't. I mean, Elliot Spitzer is your example. Do you have two examples like that?
1: Sure. There's.
0: Someone who did and someone who didn't.
1: Sure, lots of examples. Um, And, you know, the the didn't, didn't language already kind of betrays us, right? Because it's it's so simplifying in the sense that, uh, um, you know, it it takes time to figure out the meanings of the words they said in any particular press conference, right? Mm -hmm. So take... um, you know some of the more high-profile examples, like um, like Bill Clinton's response to the Lewinsky scandal, right, has unfolded over how many years now? 20 years. Uh, and you know there's initial stutterings and stoppings and startings, and then there's you know all sorts of damage control, and then there's kind of the you know the evolution of of Bill Clinton's person, his relationship with his family is, you know, his whole character, how it's evolved over time. And some ex- aspects of that are, are quite profound. Other aspects are suspicious. There is, you know, the whole um, kind of public drama of, you know, the, the religious breakfasts and the whole soul transformation and how in Clinton's case there's the very uh, carefully choreographed religious backdrop Right, so it's you know often in these cases of apologies and high profile apologies, you see people required to um feel required to hearken uh, back to their core religious values and to make a you know real demonstration of that and to have clergy around them and to get the uh the blessings of clergy that they're doing things right uh you know Clinton has several apologies in his uh in his life that are very high profile. Uh, one of the most egregiously bad ones is his, um, what's often understood as his apology for the Rwandan genocide, uh, where he, you know, he flew to the Kigali airport, stood on the tarmac, and, you know, it was supposed to be his apology. And in fact, he took no personal responsibility, accepted no blame, uh, you know, we talked about the international community needing to recognize genocide sooner. He didn't explain how we would do that. He didn't explain precisely what what we did wrong. Uh, you know, we we know in retrospect, we've seen the documents. It was a very carefully uh, carefully calibrated response, not to intervene and stop or slow the genocide. Uh, we know that he and Madeleine Albright made a conscious decision not to do it for all sorts of reasons, including the you know the geopolitical, uh, you know the recent geopolitical, uh, the Black Hawk Down situation and all that that they didn't want to you know risk another black eye of that sort. And you know what looked like an apology was in fact kind of the, yeah, in some ways, some ways the opposite. Um, Clinton also gave in some ways. You know, a rather a rather meaningful apology for the um the Tuskegee experiments, which was an interesting situation because uh, you know in some ways something that happened that long ago uh long before his tenure as president hard for him to accept blame uh but a lot of that ongoing failure to respond did happen under his watch uh and you know his apology you know there was in some ways. In some ways meaningful, in some ways not. Um, uh, there, there are so many examples that pop up in the news all the time. Um, you know, one of the most catastrophically bad ones recently was the British Petroleum. Uh, the initial attempts to apologize for the uh, the oil spill and the uh, the eleven dead. Um, that was. Uh, you know, one of the worst handled mm-hmm. apologetic situations in recent history. Uh, there was all sorts of, you know, uh, failure to, failure to, uh, you know, initially take any responsibility and it was done with such callousness and such a sense of entitlement and privilege that, you know, e- even the wrongness of, uh, you know, the, the BP executive at one point was, you know, he. That or the media reported that he said that, you know, no one wants their life back more than I do after the oil spill. <laughs> and it was reportedly said from a golf course. Um, and I, you know, I don't That's think rough. those details are actually quite, quite right. Uh, but that, uh, you know, that entire situation was just, a, uh, you know a, a real case study of everything gone wrong. And in part, because it was such a complicated case, a lot of moving parts, you know, billions of dollars of uh, cleanup fees and legal fees and lots of very large corporations blaming each other uh, and, you know, a good deal of lack of clarity about who actually deserves blame, right, because there's, you know, you've got, you got the rigs and you've got the... The, you know, those who are drilling and Halliburton doing the concrete—that that seemed to be the proximate cause of the whole situation, but that wasn't quite clear. And it's, you know, it's a—you know, it's a—you mm-hmm. know—to figure out who's really at blame takes years of litigation mm-hmm. and years of expert testimony. And there's something on fire in the middle of the ocean, gushing out oil, and it's not quite clear who deserves blame. So no one wants to say it. And you know, it's institutional apologies are. Very complicated, and And those are often those are often the you know whether it's from a corporation or a nation, those are often the ones where the stakes are highest mm -hmm. and the most people are damaged. But getting clear about who's to blame and what the apology means—that's you know—that's the second half of my first book is spent on that idea of collective apologies. What do they mean, and how do they work, and how do we how do we make sense of them? Mm
0: -hmm. So, can you give us an example of 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 a sort of public apology people will know about? that had all the elements that you, or at least most of the elements that you would like to see in a fulsome apology?
1: Well, um, uh, I spend a fair amount of time talking about Elliot Spitzer's several apologies. uh, After, you know, the the scandal that cost him, uh, you know, not only his governorship, but Elliot Spitzer was a, you know, a real rising star and, you know, uh, you know a very uh, likely presidential candidate. Uh, you know, he, he could have been president. And the damage control in that situation, you know, he made several attempts. And over time, they got better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in the past year or two, he's undone. Much of that meaning because he, there's been several under, uh, other sex scandals uh, that have uh, really unraveled a lot of the work he did. So it's often again, it's like, it looks like, wow, Spitzer did a pretty good job. Uh, and all that work, you make another mistake like that, and it's, you know, it tanks. Mm-hmm. And your reputation, your character, everyone looks back at what you said a couple of years ago and all the hard work you did to kind of you know, restore your image, uh, once you make mistakes like that, uh, you know, it takes a lot of time to rebuild your credibility and you can lose it very quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. Whenever you're being watched, right. Just like, just like in a marriage and infidelity situations, it's like, you know, an apology and infidelity situation in a marriage, you know, can really save the marriage. But it's not like the apology un, you know erases the infidelity or um you know totally restores the relationship to pre infidelity status it's you know it haunts the relationship mm-hmm. and you know even if it's ten years later and your behavior has been exemplary and perfect and you've really embodied the apology uh, you know y- your partner is appropriate to still be you know suspicious and you know the littlest thing can you know pop that bubble of apologetic meaning mm-hmm. and all of a sudden all the, you know, pre-apology badness starts pouring out again. And so it's that you know, a lot of apologetic work is maintaining credibility through behavior. And that's very fragile.
0: I, I, one of the things that occurs to me is, is that uh, most of the people I know, almost all of the people that I know are not spiritually, prepared to apologize in the way Mm. that you outlined. They just don't Mm -hmm. know how to do it. And I'll get a little bit autobiographical here, and then we'll talk about William um, Beebe. Is that how you pronounce his name, Beebe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, William Beebe, because you begin the book with him. Uh, Well, go ahead and tell the story of William Beebe, because he seems to be somebody who you say gave a truly categorical apology.
1: Yeah, I mean, as the book unfolds, I actually end up saying sort of the opposite. Um, because what looks in his case, so, so B.B. is a fascinating case because, um, and this is all, uh, beautifully documented in Elizabeth Sakuro's book, Crash Into Me. Uh, Elizabeth Sakuro was, uh, raped at a fraternity party, uh, drugged and raped at a fraternity party in the 80s at University of Virginia. And she immediately went to campus authorities and... They pretty much stonewalled her. Uh BB claimed it was consensual. She knew it was him. Uh, even though she was drugged because she looked at the mail on his dresser when she woke up the next morning, the fraternity house had emptied out. Um she knew it was him. There wasn't really much much doubt. Uh, but you know, as was you know, happens all too often, uh, campus authorities, local police kind of, you know, don't take her seriously enough. Uh, She realizes she's being stonewalled, and, you know, she tries to move on with her life. Uh, Twenty-some years later, she's an adult, married with a child. She's on her way to go to vacation, pulls out the driveway, on her way to vacation, and in the mailbox is a letter from uh, William Beebe saying, you know, basically saying, you know, I harmed you back in, I believe it was 1984. And I am sorry and us and such. And I look forward to hearing from you and trying to make amends. And of course, she is both horrified, taken aback, horrified, shocked that this person has just uh, interjected himself himself back into her life. Uh, You know, you try to recover from these situations and put it in the past and all of a sudden you're on your way to vacation and here he is uh, back in your face uh they have an email exchange and he you know explicitly admits to having raped her she learns that he is going through uh addiction treatment uh and it seems like this is part of his process of making amends uh it is not clear if he understands the legal ramifications of his confession but she presses charges. And this time, the University of Virginia authorities and the Charlottesville, Virginia police work together. Uh, They prosecute Bibi. And once Bibi realizes that his apology is leading to legal consequences and potentially life imprisonment, is you know the maximum penalty that he could face. Uh he hires an attorney. Uh he hires a uh a relatively famous attorney in that area who often um who often in several who has defended in multiple high profile cases at University of Virginia uh included the um the murder of Yearly Love who was killed by a lacrosse player in a mm-hmm. uh, I believe a, a drunken rage. Um the same attorney uh, and they go before the same judge. Uh, BB's attorney says, well, you know, this wasn't really rape. Uh, this was youthful indiscretion sort of thing. So what it looked like an apology out of the blue becomes a legal issue and becomes an adversarial kind of denial. And the lawyers get involved in what looks kind of like this incredible act of, uh, you know, of, of grace in some ways. And apology, right, I mean, you're, you send a letter confessing to something that could cause you life imprisonment. You know, you weren't, no one was investigating you. You're, you know, effectively off the hook. You're going to get away with it. And then you confess. You know, you go from not being investigated to potentially facing life in prison. That, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and it's an incredible act of, you know, on all sorts of registers. It's amazing that someone would confess to something like that. But then, you know, the legal machine starts turning and attorneys get involved and all of a sudden your attorney is denying it. Uh, And then, you know, we learn that there's a bunch of other kind of details to the case. Uh, For example, we learn that BB was not the only attacker that night, that other people attacked uh, Sakura while she was... um, uh, out cold, uh, drugged. Uh, he refuses to give names of the other assaulters. Uh, the you know, like like most criminal cases in the United States, uh, it ends up in a plea arrangement. Uh, Sakura ends up being kind of horrified by the um, the shortness. Of the sentence that BB will serve. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he ends up serving six months. So, you know, a case like this really gets you in, you know, knee deep in the complexities
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. of you know, a moral act churned through a legal context. You know, BB had, you know, by most accounts, he, he had been, um, uh, very active in, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous groups. There were several people who testified that he was, you know, something of a real exemplary citizen, had turned his life around, uh, and was, you know, genuinely remorseful, uh, but then, for a legal system to evaluate, all right, what is that? What is that remorse worth? In terms of how much we punish this person who is right, facing potentially life in prison? Uh, you know, the you know, he still raped someone. He drugged and raped someone. What does a person like that deserve in terms of punishment? And that starts really digging up. Like, all right, why do we punish? What is the point of punishment? Mm-hmm. Because in many ways it looks like BB is, you know, by some measures, and we want to do, we want to know a lot more before we said this uh, finally. But in a lot of measures, he seems pretty rehabilitated,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? He, he's reformed in a lot of significant ways. And if you think rehabilitation and reform is the point of punishment, then here's a pretty, pretty compelling case for someone who deserves, you know, less punishment for what he did 20 years ago, right? If you think that's the point of punishment. If you think the point of punishment is Something more retributive, like you rape someone, you deserve x amount of punishment because that's what you deserve because you've done something horrible then right, how much is his subsequent reform going to matter to you? Right, those are complicated questions yeah, and then you add you know to this whole soup, you know you've got you know all sorts of implicit biases flying around you know he's He's white. Uh, you know, he goes to the you know, he went to the elite university in the state. Uh so did the judge. Uh, you know, they see kind of this, you know, uh you know, very different the judge William Hogshire, this is you know, very different kind of person before you than your typical, you know, drug offender, uh, often black, uh, often poor, who is receiving these mandatory minimum drug sentences. You know, all kinds of implicit biases, all sorts of, you know, informal, hard to evaluate pieces in play. And then when you hear that B.B. only ends up serving about six months, and when you think of, you know, various kinds of drug offenders who, you know, can be imprisoned for life, and B.B. raped someone, and, you know, those offenders may have, um, you know a uh, you know, drug offender, it's receiving comparatively very light, very heavy punishments compared to a rapist. You know, that that really gets us thinking about, you know, what's the point of punishment? How do we administer it fairly? How is something like remorse relevant in criminal context, right? That, mm-hmm. That's a really guiding question of, of this current book is, you know, should we punish remorseful offenders less?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a fascinating example because, as I told you in the pre-interview, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and have been for many years. And I know exactly what Michael Beebe was doing. He was doing what is called a ninth step, which says yep. uh, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Yep. And I can talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I guess my point in bringing him up is one, one thing is that he was taught to do this. Yep. He was literally taught to do it. And, and I yep. guess one thing I'm saying is, is that most people, and me included, before I knew how to do it, had no idea. And, mm-hmm. and, and to go back just to one thing you said is one of the things that I learned in AA, or I suspect people learned it in lots of religions and spiritual programs, is that if you commit a wrong, you never get away with Never. You carry it around with you. Right. But you may not be prosecuted for it. No one may know you did it, but you're going to carry it around with you, and it's going to be soul-sucking, and it's going to cause you all kinds of grief and pain. So you need... To do something about that, and I think what they told BB, if he listened at all, or read the Big Book, or paid any attention, is that he had to do this ninth step in order that he could be free. Um, right, and, right, and, and this
1: is this yeah. is very interesting, right? Because when now notice, right? If you if you know, one thing I pay a lot of attention to is people's intentions for providing for providing the apology, right? And if BB is right, working through the checklist and thinking, you know, I'm always going to be carrying this this guilt and wait around with me until I apologize in some way. So I'm going to sit down and write this letter as either, either because I need to, you know, clear my conscience or because, you know, it's just what the book says and I'm going through the steps and I under, maybe I understand them well. Maybe I'm kind of going through the motions or right? I'm not clear. Uh, and that's why I'm doing it in large part for me. right? right. Cause this is, you know, this is process is this is about my therapy. That's right. And he hasn't actually thought about like what it feels like to be the other person. Right. To, you know, to, to actually realize, all right, what, what does my apology mean for the victim? And what does it mean for me to now interject myself into her life? Right. And then basically, you know, cold caller, and, you know, dredge up all this pain. Right. And of course, you know, the, the, AA, it's, you know, there's a caveat that you should only be making amends when it's, you know, appropriate, not going to cause more harm than good.
0: Right. I mean, and the book talks quite a bit about that. And we talk about that quite a bit as well. Mm -hmm. There are many Mm -hmm. cases in which you should not make an amend because it will injure other people. And Mm -hmm. so you have to live with it for the rest of your life. That's just tough for you.
1: Right. And now now getting clear about with an apology, whether it's BBs or otherwise, like, why is someone doing it? Right. Are they doing it? Right. For, you know, they think it's going to either, get them some benefit, right, to, you know, a crisis management situation where I'm apologizing because it's going to, you know, salvage my uh, my stock value, all right? So I'm a CEO and I got to say this because it's just, you know, in my career, corporate, whatever interest, all right? That's clearly like a weird kind of intention that people see through. Sure. Versus is it, all right, you know, I, I feel like crap and until I apologize, I'm not going to feel any better and really this is all about me, all right? That's also kind of like... In a different from saying you know I've done something wrong and I care about that value and that's what motiv- it motivates me yeah. in conjunction with right there is a person I harmed and what I care about is them yeah Right. I hurt them like I-, I thought that they were basically a means to my ends at one point and I abused them and I harmed them and I thought they were basically like you know, insignificant, subhuman. I do whatever I want to them because mm-hmm. it's what I want. Right? They're a means to my ends. And what I think the most profound apologies do, it's like you are, right, at one point, right, time one, you saw a person as a mere means to your ends, right? Someone beneath you that you could just use however you thought you know would be good for you. And then at time two, something has changed. And you see, this is a person that I've harmed, right? I hurt someone. Mm-hmm. And they are, Right, my spiritual, moral, however you want to describe it, my equal. Right, And it's you don't actually need the bowing and kneeling before them, yeah. but it's like a metaphorical, like, you know, you are my spiritual equal. And I have to now, like, go to you and say, I've done something wrong to you. And for that, I, I made a mistake, right? You are my equal, and I am now, right, the same person that I once harmed, I'm able to now go to you, and talk about really my most, my deepest, most profound value. Right? Like I'm able to explain why what I did was wrong, and to treat you what I call what I call as a moral interlocutor. Like I treat you as someone that I'm capable of talking about my most deepest, gut wrenching. Like when I'm on my deathbed, like what did I stand for? What kind of person am I? What are my values? And I can talk about that with you, and that's hard to talk about with you, you know. because, boy, you have every reason to just want to slap me in the face, right? To really kneel before you metaphorically and say, I get why this was wrong now, and I am rendering myself vulnerable to you, and they're all, you know, all these incredible historical examples of, you know, war contexts or genocide where you've got someone who, who really like embodied just like, you know, hacking their way through other people in the Holocaust or other examples. And then, you know, some years later realizing, wow, those are people that I was doing that to. And I don't want to be the kind of person and I don't want my legacy to be and I don't want that harm to continue to fester in my life and in the record of history. I want to, you know, I want to try to turn this around and make this better and to stand for something, right? I want to be a person who stands for a value. And that value, first and foremost, oftentimes is respect for other people, right? And it doesn't have to be, you know, too too fancy, but it's just a sense of, you know, you're a human. Mm-hmm. You're a person. And whether it's, you know, it has a religious undertone or a secular undertone, like, you know, and, and as you've noted, this can be especially hard for people who are, you know, don't have a, you know, a toolkit of religious principles to, to turn to, Right? If you're say you know some kind of secular relativist nihilist, whatever, like you have no idea what your values are other than a vague sense of self interest apologies can be really tough because it can often shake you out of that like holy crap, wait a minute I, uh no, no, there are things that I value, and i'm I'm steering back towards that well i think, I think because you... oftentimes we're apologizing for things that we did in our sort of you know uh, our useful. Uh, and not quite adolescence, but our you know our late teens, twenties, right when we're still kind of you know growing and maturing and learning our values, and we do all sorts of terrible things to people, and then we're in a you know more mature reflection, says, "Wow, mm-hmm. I was a completely despicable jerk," mm-hmm. and I see that now.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I you, you touch on something that I think really gets right to the point, and and that is that, well, I don't exactly know how to put it, but well, let's return to Bibi for a second. And I think it will come out, you know, he had prepared to make this, whatever we call it, apology. And one of the things that he had done is that he had made a searching and fearless moral inventory of himself. This is a process you do on paper. With your, in other words, he had gone through his whole life and you know, sort of pointed out ways that he had done badly. And, and if he did it correctly, then he did it with a sponsor. Again, I'm not focusing on yep. a just for I'm just saying this is, you know, this is one way it has been done, and I'm sure it's done different ways in different traditions. Probably even done in secular traditions mm-hmm. as well. Yep. And then the step that's immediately before made direct amends is made a list of all persons he we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. He had a list of people he had to go through, mm-hmm. and and you know, I, I think I would agree with you that it was for him. But the second part of making amends is, you always ask the person. How can I make this right? Mm -hmm. And then you are involved in helping them in some way. But again, Mm -hmm. my basic point, and and the thing that I came away from your book in this discussion with is that in our culture, no one is prepared to do this because no one believes they have anything to gain from what you call a categorical Mm -hmm. apology. All our apologies Mm -hmm. are strategic Mm because we think a categorical apology will only do us harm. And for Bibi, I think, he was able to do it because, and and you know, really talk about statements against interest. Uh, he was able to do it because he didn't think it was a statement against interest. He thought mm-hmm. this was going to save him. Mm-hmm. And for you know, I don't know. I'm not taking any stance on mm-hmm. that. But yep. maybe he's yep. drinking right now. I have no idea. Yep.
1: But- yeah, that's why it's, so, it's such a remarkable example. Because on yeah. the one hand, it's just like, wow, that that's bold to like make a you know a confession of any sort like that is. Yeah you know, spiritually remarkable. I mean, this is the stuff of, like, you know, great historical literature is when people, you know, their conscience speaks to them in the way that they confess. And those are often some of the people we find most, you know, most incredibly noble. They're, you know, islands of morality and this sort of sea of relativistic nihilism. And then, then to see that initial gesture get churned through, you know, law yeah. and, you know, modernity, right? And yeah. sort of... How you know, sometimes you uh you know you cast out the apology and you know you're hoping for good things, and then <laughs> you know reality spits back all sorts of things you need to respond to right well, be nice. and the fact that it's you know it's a dialogical and dialectical process it's not like you apologize and you say some words and then you're done, yeah right, right? that's that binary thing that I'm trying to get away from is. You know, it's a lifelong process. Right. Well, I, I think
0: in order to give an apology such as the one that you talk about, especially the part about never doing it again, you have to have a kind of spiritual. And I use that in the loosest possible sense, not, yeah. you know, not yep. metaphysical, but also in terms of your sort of brain chemistry, you have to have a spiritual awakening. And we're not prepared yep. to do that because we don't believe in those things anymore. People in AA do. Oh, I'm we. I'm sure there are people that do believe it, but I don't know very many of them. And so all their apologies are, are strategic. Yep. like they will say they're sorry if they have something materially to gain from it. But they don't think there's anything spiritual on the line because they don't believe in anything spiritual.
1: So, right, you is, know. Which that's a you know it's an important example because when you think of modern modern apologies, you know, they're everywhere. They're in the soup. You see them on the news every day. <laughs> but clearly they've evolved from yeah. you know this confluence of religious traditions of repentance. Right? that's where they come from. Right. And we are translating these, you know, thick religious notions of repentance. The the, the major world religions all have some, some version and they're all they're all more or less similar in their nature yeah. and they're thousands of years old. And now, you know, we're evolving them into some secular notion of repentance. And you know, it's kind of a square peg, round hole situation Yeah, it is. where, where you, you know, it's like when someone does something wrong to you, it's like, oh, I want them to give me one of those old timey, like religious repentance things. That's what <laughs> I'm looking for. Because right? that would really be like, that would really be meaningful, right? Like their whole soul was on the line. That's yeah. what I want them to get. Like, yeah. so what, you know, what I want from British Petroleum is a transformation of the soul, right? Because they killed 12 people and I want them to really transform their soul. But, you know, corporation doesn't have a soul, right? And, of course, the executives are thinking through, like, how do I, you know, how do I game language and market value to produce the optimal outcome? Because that's what they do, right? But it's like we kind of have this blind spot, like, oh, wow, those folks at British Petroleum, they've really, they're repenting here. And it's like, uh... No, that's metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Right, what's happening, and what I'm trying to do is get clear about. All right, which meanings are you actually getting, and which ones are you kind of wanting, but definitely not getting?
0: Yeah, right.
1: because right, you want the big, whole, robust metaphysical thing. That's what most of us are often like. You know, that's the that's the prize, especially yeah. for serious – You know, in some in some contexts, you don't we don't want that. Right, someone steps on your toe. You just want like someone to acknowledge that you existed, and that you know. You know, there are situations where you don't need the whole big the whole big thing. But in the serious cases, like you will probably, probably want most of it.
0: Right. But I think the apologizer should want, again, in AA, the apologizer should want that too, because yeah. the apologizer, it's not it's not a statement against interest. When you admit guilt, it's a statement for interest because what happens is, and to put it metaphorically, your soul is saved. You begin, yeah. you, you become the person that you wanted to be. You're trustworthy again. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do it again, right? Mm-hmm. You've undergone that sort of spiritual transformation. You're a different person. And, Yep. You know, again i just you know i was never i certainly was never taught that, but let's go to courts yep. just for a second so court sure. ordered apologies what are they I, I don't know enough about courts
1: sure so court ordered apologies um something i've you know i spent a fair amount of time on and I generally argue against uh court order apologies are when you know someone does something wrong, whether it's uh you know uh, uh driving under the influence or something. And the judge, as part of your sentence, says, All right, you must apologize or you must, for instance, um, you know, take out an ad in the newspaper saying you're sorry for endangering the community with a picture of yourself. And that sort of, you know, the court says you have to do this. Um, and there are various ways that this happens. Uh, there are several judges who really like this strategy of punishment. Uh, it's a kind of shaming. It's particularly favored among um a certain uh demographic of conservative, social conservatives who, you know, think it's a way to enforce responsibility, uh, and to you know, it's kind of humiliation, a kind of, you know, uh flogging, public flogging sort mm-hmm. of thing. But you, you know, you make you make someone apologize. And you do it in various ways. And there's a long history of this that's you know, a very long, dark history that's closely related to torture. Right? When you think of, you know, the Inquisition and things like that. You know, basically what that was is you know, will will torture you until you confess mm-hmm. to having a you know a black soul or something, <laughs> uh, right? And that you know that process of public confession and beating confessions out of people. Uh, this has you know it's it's modern version in court ordered apologies where we are going to, in some way, publicly humiliate you by forcing you to uh, give these apologetic words, and you know it's long tradition it's you know increasingly common uh there's one judge in texas in particular that really you know it makes us a you know a staple of his punishment regimen uh and you know my argument is that, th- that this is problematic for all sorts of reasons uh court ordered apologies in part because you know it's, it's once people give it a thought it's kind of obvious why court ordered apologies are so problematic right because if it's not if it's not internally motivated uh, right such that right? you are realizing that you 've done something wrong and you need to change there 's kind of an obvious uh misnomer to call that an apology yes. right if uh, there's all sorts of freedom of speech and consciousness issues too right like i 'm requiring you to read this statement that says you 're guilty even though you are um claiming innocence right? that goes on um, which is you know kind of shocking to the conscience like yeah. in a plea bargain situations like i i 'll you know insist that i 'm innocent but the judge will only reduce my sentence or will offer me a plea that if I read the statement of guilt, uh, then my, uh, my sentence will be reduced to something nominal. So I'm trading my, you know, my, I'm trading an apology for reduction in sentence. So I'm like, all right, I'm innocent, but I'll say I'm guilty for the sake of, you know, having less punishment. Uh, and that's, this is sort of, you know, in, in the sort of daily uh, process of criminal justice. Right, like um, you know, the vast majority of guilty verdicts are are not from trials. Like people, when people look at the criminal justice system, they think everyone is like law and order, like you go to trial (laughs) and people object and stuff. It's not like that, right? Some like ninety to ninety-five percent of guilty pleas come from plea agreements, Uh, which means you know there's a back room. There's you know prosecutors thinking about what can I charge, and you know defendants and their attorneys thinking about right, what are the risks of going to trial and all that. And you compound that with the fact that, right, the vast majority of these cases are drug offenses, uh, public defenders who are, you know, way overburdened, uh, and, you know, people accept, accept guilty pleas by effectively offering an apology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, gray area between a court-ordered apology and a voluntary apology. Like, you know, if I say, all right, I'll, I'll apologize if that means I get six months rather than risking life. Uh, you know, in a trial situation, I'm right? mm-hmm. guilty at trial, right? So is that voluntary, is that involuntary, right? It's like you kind of have a gun to the person's head, like either apologize or, right, we're threatening you with life in prison. Okay, I'll apologize. Yes. Uh, you know, that sort of situation versus a situation where, you know, judges are, you know, uh, requiring public declarations of, um, you know, shame in newspapers and, and things like that. It's it's common internationally, Uh, especially popular in cases of um, uh, civil rights violations, you know, racial discrimination, you you committed racial discrimination and then, uh, you know, part of your punishment becomes putting out a statement in the newspaper about why racial discrimination is wrong and things like that. And the court orders you to do that. You know, you can see why things like that. Some people will be more sympathetic to, but it's still occupying this very peculiar turf of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, courts requiring us to say things and do things that, uh, has an element of public shaming that we describe as court-ordered apologies, but aren't actually motivated by the offender's uh, by the offender's moral compass.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me one of the things that's and maybe you said this or it's in the book is that one of the things the court order apology does is it renders the actual apology null because you can't tell the difference.
1: Right, yeah, it, it generates this culture of suspicion, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, oh, air the criminal offender, apologizing, yeah. so right, of course, that's what they're going to do.
0: Because, so it, yeah. it's like if you have to say it, then you can't say it genuinely. You're like, well, good. No, no, that,
1: that's a, it's, a, it's an important point that when we're in this culture that sort of, you know, commodifies and uses apologies as a negotiating tactic, if there's actually someone who's really trying to, like, apologize, like the way I describe yeah. it, yeah. they have this, you know... Rhetorical whole, problem. Uh, like, what are you going to do? Yeah, here? they have the you know, just, people are suspicious of it. Like, all right, you're apologizing. What What are you doing here? Yeah, exactly. You're really trying to play me somewhere. Yeah. Right? yeah.
0: So this part about commodification of apologies, I found fascinating. Talk about these things in the civic context and what you found. they're kind of worth something? They have an actual dollar value.
1: Yes, and um, <laughs> you know, a very high dollar value. Yeah. Um, you know, what I've, um, you know, in, in civil context right, non-criminal context. Um, uh, the strategy of using apologies as uh, a litigation tactic, it usually gets traced back to um, the Toro Lawnmower Company. Uh, you can imagine lawnmower companies, lots of litigation, lots of injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the traditional litigation tactic of, you know, deny everything, defend everything, you know, spend a lot of money on legal fees, you know, and just sort of defend on to death, right? Deny everything, defend on to death, and then hopefully at some point down the road, people will go away or you'll settle. Toro tried the opposite, right? They were spending so much money in litigation fees that what they, a tactic they tried was, all right, instead of, you know, lawyering to death and denying everything, when there's an injury, let's send out someone sympathetic, apologize, in a way that doesn't admit blame. Kind of, you know, this is overstating it a bit, but butter up the victims. Like, you know, say, we're really sorry, it's terrible this has happened to you. Uh, you know, what do you need? Uh, you know, and then that would sort of take a bit of the edge off of the adversarial tone. And, you know, the, uh, the victim might not even, you know, consult an attorney. Uh, and they found that that strategy of you know, going, taking lots of pictures, uh, trying to settle through apology, was uh, very financially effective. Right? They you know saved millions of dollars initially, and then once Toro did it successfully, uh, you know, all bets were off. Right? Corporations of various stripes followed the Toro model. And found, right, tinkered with just the right way to squeeze the maximum litigation value uh, and, you know, the best way to play apologies in various sorts of legal contexts, right? So there are, uh, you know, medicine now is obviously the the big player in this game. You know, billions and millions of dollars at stake in medical injuries. Medical injuries are... uh, Uh, You know, one of the largest lobbies, you know, uh, both uh, attorneys, plaintiffs, and um, the insurance industry, and it's closely entwined with uh, tort reform, right? Tort reform is generally considered, you know, kind of an economic conservative uh, lobby because, uh, you know, the, the idea is basically to limit liability of, you know, corporations and service providers, Uh, and, you know, victims' rights advocates generally don't like tort reform. Uh, Tort reform advocates have found all sorts of ways to uh, pass legislation that allows, whether it's in medical cases or otherwise, people who have harmed others, right, so whether it's a doctor or a corporation or whatever it is, people who have harmed others to say they're sorry and not have those admissions be admissible in courts of law, mm-hmm. right? So I can go, so, you know, I can go, I can harm you, and then go to your home and say, I'm, you know, so sorry this happened. I can even maybe say, you know, we totally screwed up here in XYZ. And I can say that to you and see how you respond. And if you respond like, oh, you know, I know you're nice people, and you didn't want this to happen, and, you know, don't worry about it. Or, you know, just pay for my medical bills. You can try that. But if the victim says, uh, you know, that's not enough, uh, then you sick the real attorneys on them. Yeah. Right? They lawyer up, you lawyer up, and everything you said is inadmissible. Right. right? So no one will ever know that you apologized. Right. So what this means is it's a very effective kind of uh, first wave litigation tactic. So you can try to apologize, you know, sort of cast that line, see who bites. Right and, you know, settle for, you know, very favorable terms if you're a corporation. If that doesn't work, basically that's invisible, and then you do the real lawyering, mm-hmm. right, sort of, you know. And that's, you know, when you think of, you know, uh, that becoming a pervasive tactic in medicine generally, like, you know, the major hospitals uh, using, you know, it's and the way I've just described it is kind of to, uh, you know, there's a lot of gray area, between like, you know, for instance, doctors who've done something wrong and they really like, you know, they feel terribly and they're just trying to do the right thing versus insurance companies who are considerably more concerned about bottom lines and how to, you know, use language to, um, you know, squeeze the most money out of uh, the bottom line in litigation budgets. Uh, When you start to see the legislation Right. Both, you know, uh, domestically and internationally, start to define apologies as having, you know, they explicitly say apologies have nothing to do with uh, admitting guilt. And you know, every common sense notion of apology mm-hmm. is that you know people, you know, it's like, wait a minute, what is an apology if it's not expressing guilt or admitting you did something wrong? Uh, to see that level of distortion at the legislative level gets you, gets you a window into just how big business yeah. this is. Yeah, Uh, And there actually have been attempts to, like, uh, you know, undefine apologies in legislation to make them as ambiguous as possible because the more ambiguous they are, the greater benefit that confers to, you know, uh, moneyed powerful groups to, you know, control the pen Mm -hmm. in various kinds of contexts. So you get these individual victims who are kind of, you know, they don't know the whole backstory of apologies and litigation and they're just sad that someone got hurt and they just, you know, And then you have, you know, corporate headquarters has a, you know, a, you know, they could be, they could be literally litigating a thousand different similar claims at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? People who have, you know, all sorts of bad things could happen from a product or a toxic tort or something. And they're, you know, uh, telling this group over here that they're sorry. And meanwhile they're releasing the exact same product over here that they know is going to cause the same harm but because those harms uh, aren't going to cost more than the profits they make off of those products, then you know the good business strategy is just to release the product, expect the injuries, and then apologize, and it's it's all going to work out for it. Yeah,
0: I mean, it seems to me that both in the civil case and in the criminal case, that the system—I hate to mention something—is. Mm-hmm. is the system has been set up in such a way that it makes it impossible to give a genuine apology, apology or if you give one impossible to tell whether you have, because in, in either case, giving an apology is not a statement against interest. It's a statement for interest. So if you're in the criminal case and you apologize, it's going to get you a lesser sentence. If you're in the civil case and, and you apologize, it's going to cost you less money and really if you think about it apologies shouldn't mitigate responsibility they should increase responsibility <laughs> so you know an apology in the criminal case should get you more years an apology yep. in the civil case should get, cost you more money that's
1: why that's why it's, it's this, this weird situation like where the world it, it turned looks upside like apologies down. in law are it looks like apologies in law are just just oil and water right? like, yeah, it's, it's like it's like it's just like, against the rules like like you don't give away goals in a soccer yeah, match right like you don't rocky. just give away confessions which is why exactly why they're so valuable because people are like whoa you're doing something completely contrary to adversarial litigation that's that must be really heartfelt right Right? that's especially (laughs) like all right like you know for instance if you know a family member's been mortally wounded by your corporation like wow that that's really something that you've you've gone right for the spiritual meaning here and apologize Uh that's amazing that really means something to me right like and then, you know, you start doing the research and you're like, wait a minute, yeah. those are paid actors right. who are, you know, or attorneys who are being paid, you know, $1,000 to $1,500 an hour right, yeah. to
0: look
1: right. apologetic. That's a, that's a lot of dough. And that's, that's where, you know, that's the stuff that really gets under my skin is when you see victims who've really like something bad's happened to them. You know, people have died and, you know, they have all sorts of, you know, legal strategies and, you know, it's often kind of, you know disgusting enough for them to have to go through the legal process, right? Cause it feels like, mm-hmm. why am I, you know, something really bad happened. And the last thing I want to do is talk about money right now, but here are all these lawyers and my attorneys are going to get a third of whatever I get. So they're pushing for a certain thing. And I just want like medical costs covered and like, I don't want, I, I just don't want this to happen again. Like that, you know, I can't undo this terrible thing that happened. I just want it not to happen again. And you have those people then confronted with these actors basically who are giving the appearance of, you know, profound corporate moral transformation, like things are going to be different now. When, you know, just on the other, you know, in the conference room next door, they're saying the opposite to a different party Mm -hmm. or releasing the same product. Right. And that's the stuff that really motivates a lot of my work is both exposing that for what it is and to empower victims, you know, to smell that out. And, you know, when we really want social change, like if there's a certain thing we want an apology to do, like, you know, change that product, make it safer, don't, you know, commit that same toxic tort again, like demand that. Yeah. expect it and require that policy transformation mm-hmm. as opposed to just thinking, Oh, they said they're sorry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like yeah. things are going to be different never going happen forward. Again. Yeah, right.
0: yeah. They've obviously never had children. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we've taken up a lot of your time and thank you very much. It's a fascinating discussion. I could go on and on, but I would like to conclude the interview by asking you our traditional final question, Nick. And that is what, what are you working on now?
1: What am I working on now? Uh, well, I, a couple of things that we're going to on. One is I'm, I'm spending a lot of time doing philosophy with children. I have kids of my own and I'm, uh, uh, in you know, a couple of weeks, I'm doing a, a summer camp, a summer philosophy sleepover camp at university of New Hampshire on uh-huh. the theme of money, greed, and corruption. So high schoolers are common to spend a week, uh, to learn about greed and corruption, which is fun. Uh, I do some philosophy in elementary schools, which is also really fun in terms of my writing. I am working on a book on gratitude. Mm hmm. So, you know, gratitude is one of those things that, uh, you know, various social sciences are telling us is, you know, central to our well-being, happiness, one of the best indicators of, you know, quality of life. Uh, But I'm trying to really figure out what it means. Uh, I think gratitude is as slippery and tricky and multifaceted as apologies.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I think uh, gratitude can... You know, while it can be significant and important and, uh, you know, can make you feel great, it can also be uh, repressive and it can be weaponized, right? You tell people they should be thankful for everything and even if their life is crappy or, you know, like they, you know, gratitude is the opposite of thinking critically in some ways and affecting change. Uh, So, you know, I'm working on this book on gratitude, which is, you know, really nice, interesting and fun. You know, I was hoping it would be kind of a happy uh, counterpoint to the work on apologies, but I'm afraid it's going to be pretty dark.
0: Well, you know, here, hang out with children. You'll be happy. I think. <laughs> T- today, we've been talking to Nick Smith about his terrific book, Justice Through Apologies, Remorse, Reform, and Punishment. Nick, thank you for being on the show.
1: My pleasure.
0: Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you as well, and have a great week.